0: Welcome back and thanks once again for tuning in to the EM Stud Podcast. It is now January, and I have to admit that despite the cold weather, short daylight hours, and the recently ended holiday season, I think this is actually one of the most exciting times of the year, especially for medical students. If you are an M1, you have an entire semester behind you. You are well on your way towards becoming a doctor and getting into the swing of this whole med school thing, right? Only one more semester to go, and you can say you've survived the first year, and pretty soon you'll be showing the ropes to next year's entering class. If you are an M2, get ready, because before you know it, the lecture hall will be replaced by clinics and hospital wards. You'll soon be an integral part of a team of physicians, pharmacists, nurses, social workers, medical technicians, and countless other staff and specialists, all centered around providing care to your patients. If you are an M4, I'm sure you've reordered your rank list at least 100 times by now and are mentally preparing yourself for match day. After that, it'll be on to graduation and the start of your career as a physician. And finally, the M3s. Oh, the perpetually exhausted, hungry, post-call M3s, who probably aren't even listening to this podcast because they're too busy rounding or studying or catching up on a few hours of sleep. But this episode is for you. The good news for all you M3s is that by now you're getting over the hump of what is likely the best and maybe worst year of medical school. It's the best because you are no doubt learning, experiencing awesome things, getting to feel what it's like to really be a doctor. And at the same time, it's the worst, maybe, because the hours, the expectations, changing services just when you're starting to get the hang of the one you're on can certainly be stressful. But hopefully as you progress throughout this year, you've discovered that medicine isn't just about asking histories, doing physical exams, ordering tests, and following up on the results. It's also about making decisions. And every year, students tell me, and I can see them struggling with this, that the transition from knowledge into practice is hard. With all of the normal physiology you learned in the first year, all of the pathology you learned in the second, and the history and physical examination or data collection skills you learned in both, the question is, how do you take all of that and apply it to a real patient? How do you know what's relevant, what's not, and what the right thing to do is? This translational issue is particularly relevant in emergency medicine where taking raw data and somehow synthesizing it into a working diagnosis and treatment plan, something called medical decision-making or problem-solving or clinical reasoning, is at the core of what we do. A few episodes back, I talked briefly about the undifferentiated patient and working in the gray zone, an idea that uh, making judgment calls is a critical skill for emergency physicians. This is inherently the case because we work in a world where there are no absolutes, no perfect tests or diagnoses, and no perfect treatments that come without risk. And at the time, I didn't yet want to dive too deep into what tools or strategies we use to make these judgment calls. Instead, I just wanted these concepts to percolate with you for a bit. But now let's dig a little deeper into medical decision-making strategies and how to translate knowledge into clinical practice to best understand the approach to clinical reasoning or problem solving let's think of a case say you're working in the emergency department and your attending assigns you to go check out a new patient with shortness of breath and let's just say she's a 55 year old lady with a novice medical student say an m1 early on the encounter might go in a very linear fashion, starting first with the chief complaint. Once the chief complaint is established, then the history of present illness is obtained, including questions such as the classic OPQRST elements, onset provocation, quality or quantity, radiation, severity, timing. Then, a review of systems. Are you fatigued? Have you been losing weight? Do you have any rashes? Are you feeling depressed? and so on and so forth. Next, past medical history, past surgical history, Family history, social history, medications, allergies, immunizations. Then, onto vital signs like blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, oxygen saturation, and the oh so important pain scale. And finally, head to toe physical examination from general impression to lymphatics and psychiatric assessment. Phew, now look. Depending on your stage of training or where you work, this may seem like a perfectly reasonable way to approach each patient encounter. It's logical, it's systematic, it's both exhaustive and exhausting, and it takes forever. And in emergency medicine, time may not allow for such a thorough evaluation, and even if it does, now you're left with pages and pages of things you wrote down, and now you have to go back through it all and do what exactly? Figure out how to put it back together in some way to give you a reasonable differential? It is no wonder students have a hard time with this traditional method, and it seems like the longer a student spends in the room talking to a patient, the more likely he or she will be confused after presenting. Not knowing what's relevant and what's not, or being unable to pick out the central problem, makes it impossible to really come up with a solid impression and plan. So instead, a strategy called the hypothetico deductive method may be more helpful, and probably you're already doing this. Before you see the patient, but already know that she's here for shortness of breath, run through a differential in your mind. Maybe it's pneumonia. Maybe it's congestive heart failure. Maybe it's a PE. Now, when you're asking your questions, instead of randomly collecting data, you are challenging your hypotheses. Questions like, are you coughing up blood? Is one of your legs more swollen and painful than the other? Are you unable to breathe more when you're lying flat? These types of inquiries help you sort out your differential in a much more efficient way than questions like, so how do you feel? Or pretty much anything on a scale of 1 to 10. So maybe now, after testing your hypotheses, which you do even further with a focused physical exam looking for abnormal lung sounds, JVD, unilateral leg edema, you can narrow down what you think is going on into a manageable list of possibilities, and then sort out what confirmatory tests you may need. There are other cognitive strategies for evaluating patients and making decisions in addition to the exhaustive method and the hypothetical deductive method, and we'll get to them in a bit, but before we go on, you have to understand a consequence of focusing or selectively acquiring information in the HMP, and that is bias. First of all, bias is simply an inclination, a way of looking at something from a certain perspective. Not all bias is bad. In fact, when I work, I am biased much of the time in the sense that every chest pain could be an MI, every Headache could be a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and every abdominal pain is probably something really, really bad, until the patient's history and exam is able to convince me otherwise. It's this bias that makes me err on the side of caution and stop and think twice before sending someone home with a benign diagnosis. But clinical bias can easily hamper your ability to be efficient and accurate in your evaluations in bad ways. In the hypothetico deductive strategy in which you use your HMP to test hypotheses and differential diagnoses, one potential bias is premature closure. Premature closure occurs when all of a sudden the elements start to favor one of your hypotheses. Say our 55-year-old patient admitted that She had CHF, and she had in fact been out of her diuretic, and she's noticed her legs swell recently. At some point, if you're not careful, you may make up your mind, perhaps subconsciously, that this is definitely CHF. You're going to walk out of that room smiling, knowing you've hit the nail on the head, planning how you're going to give her some Lasix and follow her urine output, without even stopping to think that maybe this is actually a silent MI. Another related bias is something called confirmation bias. This is when, after deciding on a preliminary diagnosis, not only do you stop looking for alternatives, but you actively look for things that will only support rather than refute your hypothesis. Let's think about another example. Say a healthy 20-year-old guy comes in with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. He just spent the afternoon at a picnic, And maybe he ate something that disagreed with him. You've already committed the first error of premature closure, deciding that he has gastroenteritis, and now you're about to commit another. Hey man, um, what'd you eat? Oh, tuna salad? Yuck. Was it outside in the heat for a while? Are you sure it was prepared okay? Oh, and you say you ate some peanut butter, jelly, and mayonnaise with it? Uh, tell you what, we'll give you some IV fluids and some nausea medicine. Check on you in a bit. This is confirmation bias, proceeding along a line of questions with the equivalent of tunnel vision that only convinces you more that gastroenteritis it is. So when I hear these presentations from students or residents or maybe even a triage nurse, I have to admit this is when things get fun for me because then I get to become the devil's advocate. In order to counteract premature closure and confirmation bias when I'm evaluating the patient, I say to myself, there is no way... This is Gastroenteritis. Has anyone else been sick? No? Have you uh, been traveling outside the country recently? Any scrotal pain or swelling or blood in your urine? Any history of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis in the family? And are you sure you really aren't hurting right now? here in your right lower quadrant. Let's go back to our first patient, the 55 year old lady with shortness of breath who forgot to take her Lasix today and you are so convinced she has a CHF exacerbation that you looked up the pathophys and treatment of CHF and can detail exactly what you're gonna do for her today, tomorrow, and a two week follow up. But wait, her chart says she's had a PE before And when she had it, she presented very similar to this. And she's supposed to be on Coumadin still, but it doesn't look like she got her last prescription filled in a while. Of course, now I'm setting you up for yet another kind of bias. When your response is something like, but I'm convinced it's CHF. She didn't take her Lasix, her legs are swollen, and I already gave her a dose. You've fallen subject to another bias called anchoring. Anchoring occurs when not only have you perhaps prematurely closed on a diagnosis, and perhaps only paid attention to the details confirming that diagnosis, but now you refuse to rethink your diagnosis and consider an entirely different explanation. Because, after all, it's a lot of work to have to go back to square one. Now, I don't mean to suggest that only medical students fall victim to bias, it happens to all of us and in some cases occurs more frequently in people who have more experience and are more prone to become overconfident. But for the three forms of biases I just talked about, premature closure, confirmation and anchoring biases, the way to avoid them is to keep an open mind. Constantly ask yourself, well, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm missing something? Being aware of your knowledge limitations and the potential pitfalls of your own thought processes is something called metacognition. And using metacognition is an incredibly useful tool to keep your medical decision-making honest and on track. All right, so I know what you're thinking, maybe. You're saying, now, wait a minute, that's great and everything, and I'm going to try and avoid bias when I use a cognitive strategy of hypothetical deduction, but I just saw my attending walk into a room, spend like two minutes in there, and walk out with a definite plan and disposition. As I'm sure you've been told before, medicine is an art as well as a science, and in my opinion, one of the ways in which it is an art is in certain alternative cognitive strategies. We talked about the beginning M1 exhaustive approach, we talked about the hypothetical deductive approach, but there's also another method that employs algorithms. Algorithms can be standardized and well-established, like the CDC testing and treatment guidelines for STDs, for example, or they can be a particular plan of action employed by an individual when dealing with a certain type of case. I bet that most, if not all, emergency physicians have in their mind a standard algorithm they use for, say, low-to-intermediate-risk chest pain, because we see it a lot. And we understand that in someone with chest pain, out of all of the possibilities from A to Z, only F, Q, W, and Y are really all that immediately worrisome. And so each of us uses some sort of an algorithm in our head that includes maybe an EKG, a chest x-ray, a troponin, if they have this extra added risk factor, maybe also a D-dimer or whatever, but then that algorithm also goes, if the troponin is negative, then I'll do this, or if the D-dimer is positive, then I'll do that. In a way, having algorithms for certain complaints and certain types of patients allows us to be more fluid and efficient in working up a chief complaint. We travel along a standard algorithm we've come up with that provides a working diagnosis but easily reroutes us to alternatives should something change. They often include pathways that work to reasonably exclude life-threatening possibilities. Probably one of the more easily identifiable algorithms to witness is in trauma. Patients who meet certain criteria, have a certain mechanism of injury, have certain complaints, will undergo primary and secondary surveys. If they're hemodynamically stable, they'll get a chest x-ray and a series of CT scans. If they're hypotensive and unstable, they may go to the operating room. In any case, it's a streamlined way of making decisions in an if-A-then-B sort of format. Another example is for acute strokes. At our hospital, we have a stroke alert system in which we can be notified even before the patient arrives if he or she is having possible stroke-like symptoms. Then registration, labs, EKG, head CT, neurology evaluation, all happens quickly and consistently. With experience, another cognitive strategy is pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is incredibly powerful because it is the way our minds are used to working and processing input. If someone comes in with a fever, altered mental status, hypotension, and a cloudy urine sample, it fits a pattern. It becomes easier to recognize once you've seen a bunch. Actively looking for clues that break the pattern, however, is important to prevent premature closure, confirmation, and anchoring biases. Cognitive strategies like the exhaustive approach, the hypothetical deductive method, algorithms, and pattern recognition are just some of the examples of how medical decisions and clinical problem solving take place. In evaluating your patients, come up with a differential based off of their chief complaint and try these strategies in concert with your medical knowledge to help you sort out what may be wrong with them. Put simply, you know what the signs and symptoms of a PE are. You learn that as an M1 or M2. So now, go ask your patient if they have those signs or symptoms. But keep an open mind and ask yourself if everything truly fits. And if not, circle back around and explore other hypotheses in your questioning and examination. Use metacognition to evaluate your thought process and to avoid biases. Although premature closure, confirmation, and anchoring are just a few of the many types of biases, they are some good ones to be aware of to start. Use your presentation as a way to structure your thought process. If your presentation doesn't sound convincing for what you think the diagnosis is, maybe you don't have the right diagnosis. And ask why. Why was that test ordered or medication given? Why was that particular decision made? Now is the time to learn how to make clinical decisions. Even if you don't truly know what's going on, take a guess. Make a call. You may be wrong, but that's okay. Don't allow yourself to give up at the critical moment of making a decision. Well, that wraps up this episode. More to come, especially for all you third years out there. And thank you to everyone who has subscribed or followed us via social media. If you haven't, please like us on Facebook to help us continue our reach. Questions, comments, don't hesitate to send them on in. For now, this is Dr. Nate, catch you next time.